obviously I don't uh, I'm I'm completely informal to the point of being incompetent. So, I I'd, I'd like to keep it that <laughs> I'd like to keep it that way. <laughs> yeah. Those Actually, are usually the best shows. Yeah. Well, I mean I I try to cu- what's the word? I try to cultivate an an aura of studied incompetence. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain is also pure information. Are we uh, go conditioned here? Yes. interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. Okay, we all know what the rest of that sounds like. Very cool. <laughs> <laughs> you know what that's from, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's great. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, the reason I have Plan 9 is it, there's a lot of reasons. One is the, you know, like I said right beforehand, the studied incompetence that I like to cultivate on this program. And the other is just that I, the, the, did you see the Ed Wood movie, the, the Johnny Depp? Yeah. The biopic, which was I thought was amazing. It's exactly the way I mm-hmm. thought of Ed Wood, or at least I thought I did, and it, re- it confirmed all that. And the, the point was, I think he knew that he didn't know what he was doing. Possibly he was aware of the fact that he wasn't doing something really at the top of uh, Hollywood, but he didn't care. He just went right ahead. And most people don't do that, so that's really inspirational. <laughs> I think so, too. Yeah, he didn't. He said, "Look, okay, look, it looks fine." I think somewhere in his way in the back of his mind, he knew that um, probably wasn't the best. But who cares? Other, just go and do right. it. You know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Actually, today on the show, tonight, today, whenever you're listening, I'm talking with uh, Dr. Diana Walsh-Pasolka. Uh, should I do a pr- formal introduction? I think I should because I wrote it out. I Actually, I grabbed it off the American Cosmic uh, website and changed it a little bit. So, oh, uh, sure. Diana is professor of religious studies at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and chair of the Department of Philosophy and Religion. Her research focuses on religion and technology, including supernatural belief and its connections to digital technologies and environments. She's the author of American Cosmic, UFOs, Religion, Technology. This is coming next year from Oxford University Press. When next year? Um, I'm hoping sometime in the spring. So the manuscript is, for the most part, finished. Um, it has to go through copy editing and Q-Press and that kind of thing. And um, I think with the interest, uh, you know, the article in the New York Times that was just published yesterday. Yeah, which we will talk um, about. Yeah. So I think my editors are hoping to get it out sooner than later. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's a good idea. Um, I'll, I, is your other uh, one other book, Heaven Can Wait, Purgatory in Catholic Devotional and Popular Culture? Is that is that the only other like uh, popular book that you've put out, right? Well, I have anthologies that I put out about digital technology and the supernatural. One is okay. uh, with Macmillan and Michael Bess. We talk about post-human themes. And another is with Simone Natali. Um, he's from the U.K., and he is he specializes in media technologies. And those are two books that are that are almost out. Oh, one is out. One is almost out. Oh, okay. And then I have about ten articles published in academic journals on Catholic history. And if you look at the uh, dire- you know the direction of what I've been doing, I've been a scholar of the Catholic tradition. And so the book that I wrote for Oxford that came out in 2014 is called Heaven Can Wait, and it's, it looks at the doctrine of purgatory from about 1200 to around the 17th century, 19th century. Uh, and in that, that book actually is what brought me to the study of the UFO phenomena, which I like to call the phenomena um, instead of, you know, UFOs, uh, as uh, the phenomena, as people who listen to your radio show most likely know, is incorporates a lot of different aspects that really have, you know, they, they're so uh, varied that UFO, you know, in the popular imagination is, you know, something that people associate with things from other planets, but we don't know what the heck it is. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you see it all over the historical record in Catholic studies. And um, it was at the end of finishing that book that I had a whole list. Now, this is, I'm a person who actually was never interested in UFOs my whole life. Mm-hmm. I was interested in religion. And so... Um, you know, I got went and got a PhD in religion and kept doing the work I was doing, and it was all historical. So I was learning about people who had really, you know, amazing experiences with aerial phenomena. But it never occurred to me that these could be things that today modern people interpret to be UFOs until um, until this one weekend in 2012, and uh, a colleague basically looked at my manuscript and said, "You know, you've got a lot of weird things in here that look like what I would call UFOs." <laughs> and I thought it was crazy, and yeah. I said, "You uh, get out of here, you know." Like, and then I thought about it, and coincidentally, there was a UFO conference uh, close to where I live, and I went there. 
And I, uh, Christopher Bledsoe, who's a well-known experiencer, he lives in North Carolina, mm-hmm. um, he was talking at the conference, and I listened to him, and I said, you know what, there is no difference between what he is describing and what I have been researching in the, in the record of uh, Catholic history. So that was my kind of turning point from looking at, um, you know, looking at Catholic history and then um, doing this, what would some scholars would think would be a really weird transition into uh, looking at UFOs. And yeah. so um, the first, one of the first, I read two two authors who significantly impacted me. The first was Jeff Kripal, and he wrote um, two books, uh, Authors of the Impossible. And one of his chapters is one of the best chapters I've ever read on the work of Jacques Vallée. And I just ingested the chapter. Mm-hmm. And I realized that Jacques now also understand my background. I'm from California. I grew up during the dot-com boom there. Um, I'm, you know, I live around Silicon Valley. So uh, I, I recognize that Jacques was, and I had always been interested in technology and how it um, impacts belief and especially belief in religion. And so, um, so it just, I just naturally resonated with, uh, with Jacques' uh, analyses of this phenomenon as a sort of technology. And I, and I said, yes, this is, you know, and also I have to say this, Jacques is brilliant. I mean, just before his time, just incredibly prescient. And so he saw things that later scholars would see. And, you know, his uh, passport to Magonia read to me like uh, a monograph, you know, on Catholic history. He was looking through the same records that I was looking through. Right. Um, he was going back really far. He knew the Latin. He could translate it. And, you know, he was doing uh, purely academic work and making connections that people weren't making. And exactly. so um, yeah. that's, how I, that's how I fell into it. And then I, I actually wrote Jacques a letter, <laughs> and I introduced myself, and I said, hey, you know, um, I'm in California often, and he invited me to um, have dinner with him. And, um, and then we eventually met and actually worked together now. Ah, Okay. Uh, can you talk about what you're working on, or what you have worked on, and wh- where where that might be going, and what what the you know what the mutual interest was, and uh, what you might be involved in right now? My first interactions with Jacques were basically me learning everything I could. I read everything that he wrote. Um, I read all the interviews of him. You know, I mean, he's got an extensive body of work, so that takes a long time, a few years. So I met him years ago. Yeah, and. Um, we would meet at conference at little conferences that were I, w- I would call them they weren't public conferences and um, and through there um, we uh, we had I knew people introduced them to him he knew people he introduced them to me and we formed um, a little group of, of um, that work on various aspects um, his you know wonders of the sky wonders in the sky. Um, you know, he was uh, doing work uh, privately that was doing the same kind of work that I had been doing, which was looking at aerial phenomena uh, post in the Industrial Revolution. And that was safe, right? So let's look at all of that. Um, we know that we didn't have, you know, an Air Force that time. And, you know, we know that stuff that was out there in the 1600s could not have been up there. And so he was really kind of forging a methodology for future researchers, which I understood to be exactly the methodology that I think ufologists should adopt. And I actually, he and I co-wrote a blog for Oxford University Press that's on 
um, one of my, it's on my website, but it's also on a universe, uh, the Oxford blog site. Yeah, and I'll link should, that for uh, when we when, when I put the interview up. I will link that uh, piece. It's interesting. Yeah, thanks it's, for it's doing that. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, it's really a warning. You know, it's like, and we've seen people do this. So people think that they can mine the database of like MUFON and that they can um, use all of these things, which, you know, we, we you know, people assume to be, let's call it, aerial phenomena that's unexplained but it might not be i mean it might be a drone or it might be that but then they plug it into a database and the day and so they get this big data analysis that's absolutely skewed because the original research is not done carefully by people by actual people so he was trying to um warn against that kind of methodology and he has other methodologies too so um I actually, once I was, um, re, you know, once a person finishes one book and gets, you know, headlong into another book in my field, that's what we do. We publish or perish, you know. But yeah. I was, um, you could say I got bit by the bug. I think that everybody on your show understands that one, yeah. once one begins to, you know, research this phenomena, it, it kind of takes over your life. Mm-hmm. So um, th- this is what happened. So I started to find the people who I thought were saying the most interesting things about the topic, one of whom was Robbie Graham. And so I contacted Robbie, or actually I didn't contact Robbie. What happened was I I told Jeff Kripal about Robbie, and I said, check out this guy's work. And then Jeff said, we need to invite him to one of the conferences. And I said, okay. So we invited Robbie over, and that's my preface, where Robbie comes to a conference, and, um, and we get lucky, Jacques. Jacques takes us home. So he and I happened to be visiting my family in California. So Jacques takes us on a tour of all the places in Silicon Valley that were really instrumental in starting ARPANET and, you know, the precursors to the internet of which Jacques was a part. Right. And to me, it was like I was in heaven, you know. I couldn't believe that he was, you know, showing us. And the thing also is that the connection between. UFOs and and technology at that point, I knew that there was a direct connection, but I didn't know what it was. And so here I was, and this is a few years ago, and so um, he gave us, uh, you know, he just imparted a lot of his knowledge to us. So I met Robbie and a couple of other people, and I was more than happy to contribute an introduction to Robbie's book, Reframing the Debate, and um, because I thought it was a really cool intervention into the field. Um, you know, kind of corrective almost and uh, opening it up to instead of this dichotomy in the field where you have, you know, the people who think it's strictly science and we need to do it this way and it has to be data driven and this and that. But then there are the, the more weird psychic elements to it that don't don't prettily fit into the scientific framework that they want to push. And, you know, and basically you, you can't really, you know, you have both here and there's a fight in ufology about you know, which do you belong to, you know, the woohoo part or the science yeah. part? Well, you know, as Jacques rightly points out, there this is a false this, dichotomy, you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um so Robbie was, was head on uh about confronting all of these kinds of differences and so um so I kinda hammered out what I thought was a methodology and kind of uh, use that as the introduction. I was actually going to write a chapter for the book, but um, because I was writing this book for Oxford, the editors for Oxford asked me not to do it. So maybe I could write something for Robbie's next book. 
yeah, I think he wants to do a. Uh, he's thinking about doing another one, which would be, it'd be nice to have an actual chapter by you in there, uh, um, with uh, things that uh, you have learned since then, which uh, we've talked about a little bit, uh, which you've included in American Cosmic. That you can, you know, you can probably talk about things that weren't in that book. Uh, specifically, you had this, and we're jumping all over the place. Do you um, had a trip to the Vatican? We can talk about this, right? Yeah, we can talk about what's what's in the book. Yeah, um, the so the Vatican uh, Library and Observatory. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the book is framed. I frame the book in a certain way, um, and what I've uh, how I've done this is I use. Uh, I use Martin Heidegger, who a lot of philosophers hate, frankly, but I'm <laughs> intrigued. I know I'm intrigued by his philosophy because he does a lot of working on, you know, he's writing in the 1930s and 40s about technology. And he basically, he's basically disgusting. I mean, disgusting. Is disgusting. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is just, I have to admit he is disgusting in some respects because he has affiliations with the Nazi party and, and that's horrific. Um, so I have a love-hate relationship with his, his philosophy, but this is what he does. He's looking at kind of a secular intervention into science, mm-hmm. and, and it's a secular mysticism is what he's writing about. And I think that's why he's routinely hated by most philosophers, is they don't, they, they don't understand this. Mysticism yeah, never the twain shall part. meet. So that's there's another false dialectic, you know? Exactly. But American Cosmic is really about the people who have obtained um, what they believe to be UFO parts, and they've used these to engineer technologies. All of them are millionaires or multimillionaires, and they all um, are on this. uh, I'm not using their names, and they have agreed to allow me to write about them and kind of hang out with them, follow them around. I went to New Mexico. I opened my book with a trip to a, a crash site, a UFO crash site, not Roswell, in New Mexico. And I have to go there. I, I invite one of my colleagues who's a professor. And um, and the professor, we, we have to get vetted before we go there. And we go there blindfolded, so we don't know where we're going. <laughs> so they just so, drove you out there in a car, or whoever it was, drove you out in the car blindfolded so you wouldn't know where you were going, and then just let you out in this field and took your blindfolds off. Yeah, so, I mean, it's a person who is... Um, I'd known for about a year, maybe a year and a half, I had known about longer than that, didn't want to meet this person because of his affiliations. And, yeah. you know, if you're a professor and you've been boring and doing boring Catholic history for, like, for your whole life, <laughs> and all of a sudden, boom, you start to recognize that people from the aeronautics industry are, like, asking for your, you know, information and your scholarship, and you're like, who are these people? Why yeah. do they want to know this it's a little disconcerting. What the hell were they asking you? Why were they interested? Okay, so they're, because in Catholic history, like I said, it's filled with this, uh, the interface of humans with aerial phenomena, and a lot of it has to do with, like, bilocating saints and levitating saints, and even though the Catholic Church tries not to, you know, really doesn't want to talk about that part, you know, to them it's somewhat embarrassing, I guess, and of their past, that people in the, and many people in the aeronautics industry believe in this, and they're interested, and they want to know. So they consider the research of, of a lot of cats. So I, I have another colleague who's been, whose work has been um, 
appropriated to by by people in the uh, aeronautics industries. Hmm. And when I say industries, there's a, there are a few of them. There's private indus- aeronautics industries, and there's you know there are obviously federal ones. Yeah. So, and I'm not going to say which is you know I'm not going to say who who asked me, but suffice yeah. to say, folks folks who do this. So, um, so the the upshot is they don't care where it comes from. At least their bosses don't. All they care is if it works. Yeah, they're looking for the you know the ways in which these saints were able to perform these feats, right? Yeah. And so whether or not now, I have to also explain that within my field, we're trained. I'm in religious studies, and people in religious studies get really well trained in this method. We we don't have to believe in what we study. So right. say I study purgatory. I'm not promoting or believing in it. I'm just studying the ways in which people engage with that doctrine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you study, you know, so that so people in the academics we're not theologians. We're people who, who academically study religion. So this is a great way to access ufology because, you know, I mean there are a lot of crazy claims in this field. And so as a professor coming in, you know, for me to say, oh, yeah, we're studying, you know, the reality of levitation and, you know, how it's done and stuff like that. Well, no, I don't really have to go in that way. I can say, well, listen, the people who want to be called, you know, who want to engage with my work believe in it, but I don't necessarily have to believe it, but I can work with them. So that's that's the relationship I've established. Yeah. But it, while you're doing this, don't you have to kind of enter their world a little bit be, to understand what they're talking about? Yet still, it's this really strange fine line. I've did the, done this when I've been writing, especially about UFO religions, that I will agree with them and believe what they're saying and talk to them in their language while I'm doing it. Yet when I come back and write about it, I'm not. I, I you know I haven't slipped into their belief system because I have to come back and be objective about it. Is is that kind of the mindset that you use? Yeah, that's a tricky kind of slippery slope. So it, it can uh, be. I mean, it, I've seen where people get so embedded in something that they just slide into it. It's all they talk about ever, you know. Uh, again, with, especially with the UFO thing, but also with religion, of course. Oh, definitely, absolutely. I mean, um, Victor Turner and his wife uh, were famous atheists who studied at the, I think it was the University of Chicago. And they studied pilgrimage and, you know, Catholic pilgrimages. And then they became Catholic, which much to everybody's dismay because, you know, they were atheists. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff happens. So, um, so I, I was very careful. Yeah. And uh, luckily, I have a lot of different people uh, around me who I listen to. So I have academics around me, George Hansen who's a big skeptic, but also, you know, obviously engages with this study. Mm-hmm. I have David Gannett, who also follows along the same lines as, uh, you know, George Hansen in the sense that he's, um, he engages with the phenomena, but he's super skeptical about it. And, you know, I've kind of, um, so I, I, in a sense, I'm careful. Um, however, I do have to say this, is that the I'm, Absolutely gobsmacked, which is a, a, a UK fr- uh, word. It's a great I've phrase. In, I've lived in Dublin for a while, so that somehow got into my vocabulary. Uh, <laughs> I was gobsmacked by the, the intelligence and the incredible creativity and the lives that the people who I study led. I mean, these were some of the smartest people in the world. They really are, by anybody's account. Mm-hmm. They're, they're I can't say who they are, but they're really well known. They're um, 
you know, and they've done things that nobody has done. I mean, they're just, they, so that is impressive enough to me to try to find out how, and you know, how, what were the mechanisms that allow them to be these kinds of people they believe are connected to this type of phenomenon. So to me, to kind of parse it all out, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really weird world to be in. And, um, and I say that in the book. I'm not going to pretend that it didn't impact me in any kind of profound way, because it did. Yeah. Yeah, well, we actually should get <laughs> the a root of all this is your your um, first chapter or your preface actually. No, I'm sorry, your first chapter about going out to that spot in New Mexico, which I interrupted you about. So maybe you can continue that story, the blindfolded trip. Right, right. So, um, okay, so this I had been in the study of this now for about almost two years, and um, this uh, person suggested that he take me to this place in New Mexico, which is a, an alleged crash site. And I said, I'm not going to go alone. And, you know, I'm a little too freaked out about this <laughs> situation. And yeah. he's like, no, we can't go. I have to get you better. You can't go with anyone else. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to go. And he said, okay, who would you go with? So I hope Jeff doesn't mind me saying, but I asked Jeff Kreipel to go with me. And he said he wouldn't go. And I said, is he insane? <laughs> yeah, I know. That. He knows he's insane now. Now, after the whole thing has happened, he's like, can I go now? And I said, the is over, friend. Yeah, you, you got to say yes. These are these things where if something comes up, you kind of got to throw caution and say, I'll do it. Yep. So the person I chose said, um, you know, said, I will go this hour. So he was the perfect person to choose. He's an, an, a colleague of mine. He is a... Um, He's an academic, and um, so he, and then he was vetted, and apparently, thumbs up on him, he could go. Mm-hmm. So uh, we all, we flew out there, and uh, when the time came, we went and wore the blindfolds, we agreed to do that. <laughs> it was very weird. Yeah. Um, we got out there, uh, the blindfolds were taken off, and I looked around, and I recognized the place. And uh, you, and you're going to have to get the book to see what the place <laughs> looks like. <laughs> but I, I, you know, and I was very clear that I was agnostic. That I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily believe. But they both believed. And um, we did find parts. And uh, the part, and I described all of this in the book. And the parts were, you know, uh, analyzed by. They're not with us. But they're now with uh, researchers. So there are researchers who are affiliated with universities who do do this kind of, you know, they do look at these parts. There are, they are anomalous. Um, whether or not they are, I mean, they're so anomalous, they're incomprehensible. Let's put it that way. So, so that happened. So that's the first chapter. Uh, the second chapter goes into the same trip, but from another perspective, talking, you know, with the with the other person I went with. And then I go into how, um, how our engagement with technology impacts how we believe and how we believe about uh, the new, what I call religion mythology of the UFO, because it, it's, it's becoming a new religion. When people have, like, let's take Christopher Bledsoe, for instance, he had an experience and he's a Baptist and his experience 
um, caused him to reinterpret his own religion within a UFO framework. So he saw then Jesus coming back in the clouds as Jesus coming back in these UFOs and things like that. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people, a lot of people make this this uh, kind of maneuver. Um, but then I talk about I do a lot of work on how our engagement with technology actually becomes part of our memory and part of our um, part of our bodies even you know we physiologically respond to these things even if we say we go to the movies and we don't believe or consciously on uh, uh, on a very on a level that's that's uh different than that part of our level that says we don't believe we are believing it we really are yeah you and have so to or you wouldn't uh, enjoy the movie exactly and, and if it's a, a good movie of- or book or whatever it is it gets into your subconscious and it stays there and it starts to grow in different ways that you wouldn't expect and people don't expect and maybe even the creator of the piece of art didn't expect i totally agree now this is um a little piece of my preface which is available on my website anybody can read it right now um the american cosmic cool. site yeah, theamericancosmic.com, okay. right. and this is I talk. Uh, this is where I talk with Jacques, and I talk about Jacques, and mm-hmm. I basically say, and you know, this is where I'm hoping in some way to to make the story right because when he was the consultant for Close Encounters, um, Spielberg didn't necessarily listen to him in terms of how this the re- the real phenomena works and is very complicated. And right. so I thought, you know what, I'm going to try my best to make that right. And I think Spielberg was like, well, this is just, you know, the American public wants this. And it's like the American public is smarter than you think. They can actually grapple with what this phenomenon is. And if this phenomenon is real, then they have uh, they're entitled to grapple with it. Yeah. So, um, and he's smart enough my- that he could do that yeah. without being obvious about it. Exactly. So the Hollywood continues to dumb it down and to create these stereotypes about it. Um, that I don't like that. And the people that I worked with who actually interact with the phenomena, they don't like that either. And so part of my book, the middle parts of my book, really get into the research that I've done on how we interact with media. And we've got to be really careful about the UFO, mm-hmm. how we interact with the UFO image. So a lot of people get this idea, oh, UFOs, they're like this. And in fact, there's a study was done, and Americans actually believe that if the UFOs, what the UFO scenario would be like would be like the X-Files. Well, of course they're going to believe it's like the X-Files because that's what we've been... That's what's been pushed, um, and that's what's been... That, yeah. that, is the, that is the narrative. That is the cultural narrative, yeah. And now it's being linked to national security. And it's like, are you sure if, if they exist? Are you sure they're... Um, are you sure the government is the, is the deus ex machina that knows what's going on? Yeah. Right. So um, anyway, so yeah, so that is uh, the middle part of the book. Now, I end the book. It's all, it almost comes full circle because what happens is that now I've been working with Tyler. So I frame the book with respect to two things, Martin Heidegger's philosophy and Fight Club. And Fight Club I love because it basically talks about a club of people who can't talk about what they do. Mm-hmm. And so this was something that there is a club like that. And I know the members of this club. And so I thought that was a great way to frame the book. Yeah. And so uh, Jacques called it the invisible college or actually Heineck called it the invisible college. I'm going to call it fight club. <laughs> <laughs> it, it still exists. 
but it's way, way different than this kind of like group of scholars and stuff like that. So, um, so anyway, Tyler, who is the person who takes us to New Mexico, I eventually take with me to the Vatican. And um, I do, um, because of my work, I have the credentials to get into the secret archive of the Vatican. Mm-hmm. And um, Tyler, however, does not. Yeah. Um, he ends up getting in, though. And so we get into the secret archive, and, and we're funded by a someone I won't name, but is a philanthropist. And he, he really he wants to know about the canonization records of, of Joseph of Cupertino, who's a levitating saint. Right. And of, you know, the 1600s, and of Sister Mary of Agreda of Spain, who's a bilocating levitating saint. Mm-hmm. So we go there, and we look, and my job is to look at the records and translate them so Tyler can kind of assess them from an aeronautical perspective. Um, a lot of things happen that make me realize that the Vatican is, is a weirder place than even I thought. And, um, but what I found out is that. Sister Mary, who's not a saint, by the way, she's a, the, the church has, like, not canonized her, although she's, I think she's venerable. She's a venerable, she's on her way to canonization, but, but they hesitate for various reasons. Yeah. So in the 1600s, she believes that she's been bilocating to the New World in Spain, and that she's been, and in, in fact, if you go to New Mexico, you'll see that there are, like, um, she's venerated there everywhere, so she's part of her story, if not her real bilocations, you know, I'm agnostic about whether or not she really bilocated. But really, what really struck me when I figured all this out was that we went to Castle Gandolfo, which is where we were guests there. Um, what is that? And Castle Gandolfo is actually where the Pope, it's like the summer residence of the Pope. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, it's incredibly beautiful. It's a town about an hour and a half north of the Vatican in Rome, and it houses one of the oldest, if not the oldest, space observatory in the Western tradition. And so I happened to be acquainted with Brother Guy Consolmagno, who's the director of the space observatory, and he's an astronomer, and, a, and a, he's won the Carl Sagan Award, so he's a, a, a very well-known astronomer, mm-hmm. um, an incredibly nice man. And so a couple of years ago, I asked him if they had a space archive in the Vatican, <laughs> and he said, yes. He said, yes, they do, and in fact, it's in my place. Ah. You can come see it any time. So he invited me to come see it, whereas it was very difficult to get into the Vatican secret archive, and there were Israeli guards that guarded it. It was easy as pie. I don't know if that's an expression, but it was easy <laughs> to get into the secret archive. I mean, the archive at the space observatory. In fact, we got there and brother guy was like, here's the key. And so we got to look <laughs> all through the archive and at our leisure. And, um, it was a wonderful, beautiful experience. Brother guy has been, uh, mischaracterized a lot because he likes to tell jokes about, you know, um, you know, would, would the Pope baptize an extraterrestrial and that kind of thing? And um, and he's mis- been completely misquoted, and uh, none of that is true. He's not in any way conspiratorial or anything about that. He's he's just the nicest man. So anyway, so we um, we were able to go into the archive and and look at the original works of like Kepler and you know Copernicus and people like that. 
which is funny because he was uh, Kepler and Koper- well, I don't know about Kepler, but Copernicus was, was definitely persecuted by the church, and now they have his original writings in the in the yeah, library. Yeah, oh, that's what the, it was hugely ironic. I yeah. mean, here I was, and they were both. Pers- I mean, they their works were both, you know, heretical. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in fact, Sister Mary's works were heretical as well. And she wrote, she wrote about space travel. And this is what I thought was strange, was that some of the works, she had to burn them because she went up against the Inquisition. And they said, and, you know, she said, well, when I bilocated, and by the way, she reminded me of people who were like Joe McMonagall, people who were remote yeah. viewers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she, so she said, you know, I would travel through space and I'd, I'd see the Earth spinning and it was a globe. And, you know, she's talking about it when astronomers knew it, but the church wasn't about to say anything about it. So her works were considered to be heretical and um, burned. And there are very few copies left of some of her early works. And I have one. I'm, I'm actually in the process of translating one of her works. That's a, basically it's a cosmography where she talks about the orbs in heaven and things like that. So mm. I was fascinated by that. When was then, this? When, when, when did she write these things? She wrote them in around 1615 to 1630. Yeah, which was uh, in the same way that we're talking about. This struck me just now. In the same way that we're talking about what the subject of your book is, that must have struck people at the time as completely insane, incomprehensible at the time. She was so far up, not, I don't know about a head, but apart from that culture, that it it didn't make any sense. So if it didn't make any sense, the Catholic Church said, "No, well, it does. It's not true because it doesn't make any sense." I think we're kind of fighting against that right now in um, our culture, where a lot of these things you write about in American Cosmic don't make any sense to the greater public. Uh, is that is, is would that be a fair assessment? Yes, it's a fair assessment, except that I'm almost certain I won't go up against an Inquisition, yeah, exactly. or I don't know. The, you know, the Internet is now the new form of the Inquisition. So if you get hate yeah. on the Internet, that's that's pad to. So it's not like having your head cut off. Yeah, you're, but, you're burned at yeah. the uh, digital stake, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, exactly. So um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no. So I was intrigued then, and it was only kind of off the cuff that this this uh, person who asked us to go and funded our trip asked me to look at her records. And as I was in the archive, I was thinking, you know, what's really odd is she bilocated to New Mexico, what yeah. we now call New Mexico. And so I looked at Tyler and I asked him and I said, "Could?" because I didn't know where we went to New Mexico, but it says so in her one of her books. So I looked at the book and I showed it to him and I said, is this where we went? Is this where we went when I was blindfolded? And he just kind of stared at me like, I wish you hadn't asked me that question. <laughs> and he couldn't, he couldn't say yes or no, but I knew that the answer was yes. So the strange, so that made, that was very strange. That was my moment. So I thought, you know, this is just about the weirdest thing that I, I mean, true or not, whether she bilocated there or not, that even this story is weird. So, um, so I was, uh, I spent more time then looking at her records and her bilocation than I did looking at the other things. One thing I did notice there was that they do have a section on the search for extraterrestrial life, which is totally legitimate, you know. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed was that there were lots of works up until 1966, and they and a lot of those works were focused on intelligent extraterrestrial life, you know, some of which were um, written by Carl Sagan. 
And so I thought, okay, well, you know, this was a big thing. Like people from Harvard and MIT were actually involved in this research and they were funded. And then it stopped. And then all of the subsequent books were focused on like microbes, you know, the search for microbes, non-intelligent extraterrestrial Mm. life. Were you implying that people like Sagan were, did they just have his writings or were they funding him in some way? The, The Catholic Church. Oh, no, I don't think, I think that this was just what uh, the, the Space Observatory Library uh, had. I don't think that the Catholic Church was funding Carl Sagan. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, so the second question is, uh, and you were probably getting to it, what the hell happened in 1966 that shut down any kind of speculation about intelligent extraterrestrial life and went back to, like, the, the, um, the uh, what, mainstream culture exobiology uh, idea of it? Yeah, so I think that um, I I have my theories about them. I'm not going to say, but I did actually engage in a conversation with Tyler about this, and he said he knew, and um, it had to do with his own work. And um, so if you think back, I mean, you and I were young then, um, if if even alive, but... um, this is uh, this is something for people who knew about that the space program and what happened, and you know I think that they can theorize about that. I'm not, Greg. I'm not going to speculate. I have my theories about it, but they're pretty out there, so yeah. I prefer not to speculate. <laughs> there is a there is a value in having a bifurcation between what you think, what you believe, what you're thinking about, and what you talk about. It's very strange. Exactly. And if you talk about it, it'll screw not because other people know or anything, but in your own mind, you'll screw up your your through line on what you're trying to figure out by yakking about it. So I completely understand and respect <laughs> you would say something like that on my show and I don't feel like, oh well, you know, you're not telling us. It's like that's this is part of the game that people don't realize. When you get very involved in this and not you know, I'm not saying I am deeply or anything, but there is a there's a weird and horrible and soul searching value in silence. Exactly, and the folks have to respect that. Yeah, and it, yeah, and that's another hard one too because you know the way we were set up and you know in this digital stake thing is that you have to tell me because if you're keeping something from me, that means you're lying. It's like, it does not mean I'm lying on a very basic level with crimes and all that. Yeah. Being silent on things is, is not a good thing, but when you're involved in research and finding things out for yourself, which is part of research, the, the value of silence is, is um, it should be respected. I think. I definitely agree. Actually, that's a theme in my first chapter mm-hmm. because it's there that I recognize um, that I'm at a conference and the conference is set up for people who work on projects that have to do with the phenomena and they can't be known and then academics yeah. now academics you know academics work in an environment of complete transparency right so we you know if, if we don't share our sources we're completely not legitimate so we share our sources to a fault you know we say it was on this page in this 16th century document in this archive you know i mean that's what we do and so my first big eye-opening experience that was kind of like a slap in the face was when I recognized that that the group that studies the phenomena maintains secrecy and they don't share their sources because they're protecting them. And the group that I was a part of were, were kind of <laughs> like, I don't want to call us academic dolts, 
but in a sense we were because you know <laughs> academics tend to think it's us we know everything and but we don't know everything and when we when we are confronted by a group that can't tell us we need to respect that but a lot of us don't a lot of us say wait a minute that doesn't conform to my the ethics of my discipline therefore you did you're wrong yeah. and i quickly surmised that i was not going to get anywhere if i maintained that ethics you yeah, know? yeah. I, did, I had to be flexible or else I wasn't going to learn anything. Yeah. The title of my first chapter is You Play the Game or You Get Nothing. See, that there you go. You that's exactly it. Uh, you got to you got to you have to abide by a, a group's rules so they let you sit at the table for the game because if you do, if you don't agree to those rules, you you are not allowed to sit at the table. And sitting at the table is is quite valuable um if you want to do some learning. And ultimately, this learning is is for your own, for your own growth. But if you're lucky, some of that learning, or maybe a lot of it, can come out in a book like American Cosmic. Uh, this this is why Diane and I talk, uh, are are talking on this show here, and have talked a little bit before. Obviously, we met by um, Diana doing the introduction to um, reframing the debate, and since then we've talked a bit. You know what I'm interested in, uh, in, in uh, light of what we've been talking about and what we've talked about before is why is the aeronautical industry, aeronautical industry interested in levitation? And if they are interested in levitation, what is behind it that would make them interested? Because is there a mechanism behind it that they think is important or that is usable or is applicable in a technological way? Uh, the way, okay, so this is how it works. A person looks at a historical record, let's say it's from the 1600s or the 1700s, and what one person sees, another person does not see. So I, I saw this early on. So if I go back and I look for, say I'm looking at Joseph of Cupertino, mm-hmm. and, he's levi- and he's levitating, and he has, you know, like, there are so many credible witnesses to his levitations. And they, they and, you know, they describe his levitations. And basically, if I'm looking at it from the framework of, um, a, like, a person who does social science or a person who does um, historical religious studies, I'll say, how, what were the inner, you know, how did the community interpret his levitations, and what did they mean to the hierarchy? So I'm looking at it from kind of like a political, stress, you know, way of looking at it, a framework. But... If I take along, this is when I, okay, when I first did this, I actually write about this in Reframing the Debate. It's mm-hmm. the, this encompasses the first three paragraphs, I think, of my, um, my introduction or my foreword, where I basically say, I have a friend who works in the aeronautics industry. He, he's not Catholic. He is Baptist. So, in, therefore, he's never, ever heard about the stigmata of St. Francis. Right. And what I did was I went back to one of the first records of the stigmata, which was written by Brother Leo, who witnessed the stigmata. Uh, the stigmata, by the way, the St. Francis is, is lived in the 1200s, and he is, he is supposed to be a person who experienced the first wound of Christ, the stigmata. Okay. Right. The way, if you, if you look at the paintings of it, by the way, if you give the paintings to somebody over 50, I hate to be ageist here, but it's the way in which we grew up. So they'll look at these paintings and they'll say, oh, yeah, that's, that's the, you know, an angel coming down and, and St. Francis getting the wounds of Christ. If you show it to my students, you know, who are 20, they'll say, that guy's getting zapped by a UFO, right? Yeah. <laughs> 
it's the change in the way, it's the change in how we view these these strange experiences. So St. Right. Francis is hanging out with Brother Leo. It's the saint, I mean, it's the feast of the archangels, okay? And so he's on a mountaintop and he's fasting and praying. And this this um, this spinning disc appears in the sky. It, it's, it goes through the atmosphere among, uh, you know, conflagration of sparks and things like that. And it comes down and then... Um, it, it somehow speaks to him. It seems telepathically because they don't say what it says. And then it zaps him. And, and he actually dies from these wounds eventually. So it zaps him with some kind of like, it looks like it rays or something like that. So the original work, if you translate it, I translated it and I gave it to my friend. And I said, can you tell me what's happening here? I didn't tell him anything about it other than that this happened. I'm not going to tell him who it is or when it happened. Mm-hmm. And he read it. And he said, oh... Well, this looks like he completely analyzed it from a perspective, and he saw things that I never would have seen. So he saw light. He saw a certain type of light. He, he read into the, you know, he's the one who basically said, this looks like, like telepathy that's going on here. And he also talked about the sparks and the way that the, the thing came down and how it stopped suddenly. And so, you know, his framework is going to be completely different than my framework when we look at the same exact text. Right. That's why when you do this kind of work, it has to be uh, interdisciplinary. It can't just be historians going back and looking, because I don't know what, you know, I, I wouldn't have chosen all of those things to look at. Right. You need you you need that. Uh, that in fact, that's probably why you're uh, exactly why you're useful, because you have a perspective that they don't. All they're looking at is, what does this? What kind of technology might this represent, and what could we do with this technology, or what have we done with it? And yours is, well, this is what they saw at the time. This is what they're saying it was at the time, and try to get it as accurate as possible, so they, so they can possibly use that information. Exactly. So they. So what the I think what's going on is that the people in the aeronautics industry are just mining the data. You know, yeah. they're doing the best they can to get as much data as they can. When they look at these kinds of experiences, they see a certain color of light. They see the way in which the spinning discs uh, move, you know, how they're described. So they see a lot of things that I could never see because I was blind to it, frankly, because I was looking through the lens of my graduate school education. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what did uh, it, so... Uh, to continue the discussion about what why they're interested in levitation, um, oh well, for the same I, I get it now because for the same reason that you said that um, Saint um, uh, Saint Francis uh, had this encounter, they're looking for clues in that, but they're also looking for clues in what happened to Joseph Cupertino or any of the other levitating saints and how that might be somehow practical instead of just some religious belief. Um, that was made up or that people were you know, hallucinating about or whatever. The other point you made, I think, in the chapter you sent me was that um, the first thing people would ask is like, well, they're cowed by the church and you know, they, they, they're made to believe in these things and it's just superstition. But your point was, no, the Inquisition came and asked these people what they saw and if they lied about it, they could have been executed. So they had to tell the truth as as they saw it, because that was a mechanism for getting at the truth, was (laughs) you tell the truth or else. And um, that is that is exactly true. I mean, what you know, what is so amazing about the people who actually came out and talked about their weird experiences like Teresa Avila, Sister Mary, Sister Maria, 
Joseph of Cupertino's witnesses. This was during the Inquisition. And they had to tell the truth or very terrible things were going to happen to them. And so they, you know, they had to swear under oath. So one of the records that I saw for the person who I was doing this for, I, oh, I shouldn't say this, actually. (laughs) The pages and pages and pages of witnesses who basically swore under oath of what they saw. Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, if we could do um, <laughs> abduction and UFO research that way right now, <laughs> right, <laughs> might, exactly. it might be a, things might be a little different. I don't know, uh, but then again, yeah. you know, you've got the motivation of the people asking the questions too, which people don't often take into account. It's true. So um, when I went to the Vatican, um, I actually there was a really kind and nice and um, I dare say holy because he seemed really good priest who helped me get uh, an interview with a postulator. And a postulator is a person who is uh, the head of, he helps determine whether or not a a person is a saint. Mm -hmm. And so this person had been a postulator for 50 years. And he was really, you know, he had been an uh, advisor to almost all of the popes during that time. And he was just such a kind and nice man. Brilliant, brilliant in his 90s. So I had like a two hour interview with him. And, you know, we talked about levitation. And he said, well, levitation is not the criteria where we determine whether or not somebody's a saint. In fact, it's heroic virtue that's the most uh, important determinant, you know? Mm -hmm. And I said, I know that. And he said, and by the way, people don't levitate anymore. And I thought about that. And there was no way I was going to say, in UFO literature, they levitate all the time. You know, that, that was like, you know, I was not going to say that because I wasn't there to convince anybody. But I just realized that the phenomena continues, but the framework for understanding it has completely changed. Oh, yeah. And I, I know what you're talking about. But in what way? The funny thing is that you say in uh, one of the things you wrote is that the Catholic Church doesn't, and you've just said it here, they don't really accept levitation anymore. But um, some scientists do. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. Ironic. Yeah. <laughs> well, what's the, what, you know, is there a mechanism that they thought would, would cause that? Or did the Catholics just say, well, I guess they just levitated. Wouldn't they kind of want to know how it happened or what, what might be, not that it was just a miracle. I'm sure they were uh, curious enough to figure out how it worked. Or did they even address that question? Um, no, I'm sure. Um, I have a feeling. I listen. I I happen to be a Catholic, so I know what not to talk about. And so, um, and the priest who I worked with there, and who was really instrumental in helping me navigate through, you know, where I could go and where I couldn't go in the Vatican. Um, he basically surmised what I was doing, mm-hmm. and he said, "No," he said, "I don't think." He goes, "I understand what you're doing." He said, but I'm not quite sure that there's value in that. He said there might, you know, it's, it's, and so that was kind of a way to say, kind of back off from that question. Yeah. Now that, that doesn't mean that they didn't have, they didn't ask that. I'm sure they have. I am not privy to how they've asked it. If they've asked it, uh, maybe they just, you know, bracket that, but other people ask it. So the thing about the Vatican, of course, is that it is not a democracy. So it's right. not, it's not like, you know. We can go in there and demand the information. I mean, I'm lucky to have seen what I saw. Yeah. And in fact, one of the one of the records that I saw, which was in pretty good shape, is now considered non-consultable. So I might be even the last non-insider to have seen that record. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so, so they, you know, go ahead. Oh well, um, it kind of made angry or perturbed the people who funded this venture. But I had to explain to them that you know we're not dealing with American academics where you can just say, I demand to see your sources. Yeah, exactly. They're like, we're not going to show you our sources. We don't care. Who are you anyway? You know, they've been around a lot longer than we have, and they've been a non-democracy for a yes. long time. <laughs> that, that, that is, that are the, those are the, yeah, you're playing a game according to somebody else's rules, and you got a seat at the table by playing their game, which is fine. Exactly. You know, uh, but okay. So the next question would be, well, then what do your colleagues that not not the ones that funded the trip, but the ones that wanted to know about the levitation, what do they think is a mechanism behind it, or can or can they talk about it, or can you talk about it? That is something that is in the process of being determined. I guess. I mean, if they, I'm listen. If I, if they knew, they wouldn't tell me. I'm pretty certain. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's weird is, as we talk about all this, there are two relevant things that have happened recently. And one was, and this is the big uh, smelly elephant in the room, the New York Times article about yeah. talking about the Tom DeLonge's group without talking about Tom DeLonge, which I thought was kind of interesting. And what uh, this guy Elizondo from the CIA said and what he revealed about what's been going on. I don't know what to think about the timing of this. I'm not exactly sure what to think about why they did it. But it's relevant to what we've just been talking about for the last hour. Indeed, yes. This has been kind of sub rosa for a long time. But now they decided to say, let's put this in the biggest paper of record in the United States. Why do you think that happened, and why do you think now, and what do you think is going to happen because of it? Does this change the conversation and the perception in any significant way? Um, it absolutely does. So um, I'm aware of, uh, I try not to talk about the, the various intricacies of this, but I can give you a general overview, and it's this, that this industry itself has been um, experimenting with privatization, Okay, uh, and the reason for that is because the private companies might do things with more efficiency, or um, you know that maybe the bureaucracies have been tapped out, and so this mm -hmm. is one way to get this information into. I mean, it's already happened. Yeah. Um, you know, I I'm the people who I traveled to New Mexico with aren't the only people who have these artifacts. Others do too. Now they're going to make use of them as best they can. And they're going to try to get the best researchers in the world to figure these things out, crack their codes, create technologies from them, that type of thing. That in my head is what's going on so that the public won't be so completely, um, the word again, gobsmack yeah. <laughs> when private com when private companies emerge that actually do really amazing things with these, these uh, anomalous artifacts. Yeah, but why do they have to admit that? Why can't they just say some guy at our company came up with it? I think because it's already out there. I mean, I think all I, to tell you the truth from what I know, and especially if you read my preface, it begins with um, the secrets of Silicon Valley, <laughs> right? Yeah. That's the, that's the, you know, so I think that a lot of things... It's. Um, I think it's already out there, and a lot of people know already. Mm -hmm. And this is a you know this is a way to kind of make it uh, non you know. So some of the 
companies that are supposed to know aren't embarrassed by it. Hmm. You know, they can say, oh, we've known this. <laughs> I mean, frankly, I think the private companies probably know more. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they do, but I'm still wondering why they can't just deny everything because there's no way anybody can get into their records and find out how they found out whatever. Um, they can just they can claim whatever, and it, it, they can claim that they you know somebody at their company came up with whatever the idea is or whatever the technology is or their team came up with this. They don't have to um, appeal to well, it came from these artifacts that are anomalous, and we're not exactly sure where they came from, but they're not ours. It just seems weird to me that they would say this right out front, and it makes me wonder how much truth there is to something. And I wrote this, a couple of people on Facebook said, you know, this, isn't this amazing? And my first comment was, I'd be very careful when somebody tells you something that flatters your prejudices and your beliefs. I would have a very cautious attitude. Do you agree with that? Or if not, why not? I agree with having a very cautious attitude, and I'm going to appeal to popular culture to make my point. So mm -hmm. um, a few weeks ago, I saw the Spider-Man movie, the latest one, and um, I went to see it with my kids who were 10 and, um, you know, 9, 10, around that area. So, like, you know, the, uh, my daughter's 14. And this is interesting to me because the Spider-Man movie was all about the use, the correct use of alien technology. And that was the theme of the movie. And what was fascinating to me was, you know, the Marvel uh, heroes, superheroes are supposed to be kind of like uh, not, they're supposed to be people from the poorer class you know, or, you know, people who aren't uh, anomalous people is what they are. You know, they're people who are mutants and, and things like that. And so, but... This is just the opposite of what the Spider-Man movie made the point out to be. So the point of the Spider-Man movie was that the, the alien technology wasn't even questioned. It was just assumed. Everybody just assumed, yeah, we have this alien technology. And then it was being used in a proper way by the government, supported by all of the superheroes, instead of being used by the people um, who you know are disenfranchised from the government. So I thought that message was really, really interesting mm -hmm. and problematic even, although I have to admit I really enjoyed the movie. <laughs> and um, the movie, I mean, I really did. And the movie was awesome because it had characters who were diverse and, you know, it's heading in the right direction. But that really kind of bothered me, that one part of the movie, that for one thing, young people assume this already. And secondly, this movie was kind of, you know, promoting a certain way of, of using this technology. Now, what's also interesting is that, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. So that, mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll speak about it in general terms with reference to this example from popular culture. Well, my own website, so my own website, I'm writing a book that's, that's, you know, I'm going to be published by an academic press and it's generally you know, targeted to audiences who read books from academic presses, not young people, you know, not like 18-year-olds and stuff like that. Yeah. What's fascinating is that my website, the demographics of my website, like 80% of them are between the ages of 18 and 34. Like young people are really believers. They're really into this. And so um, so I think, and of, and of course, uh you know, this is the demographic that some of these companies are going to be uh, appealing to, which mm -hmm. I think is interesting because this is the demographic that's going to consume the media. But 
it's not the demographic that's going to be working for these privatized companies that are going to be emerging. Hmm. Well, I'm just so I'm thinking about it. It's important to have a public perception of what you're doing that might not necessarily jibe with whatever you're actually doing. And that that's kind of worrisome, but that's how the defense industries have operated since the beginning, I believe. Where there's a public, there's a public face. Well, most companies like this is a public face and what we do and what we, what we have and where we get our ideas and how we, you know, how great we are. And then there's what they do behind the scenes. Um, so that the people, are they recruiting people to be in there? It's like, okay, here's what's really going on. Or is it, uh, is there a bifurcation where the people that they're going to hire and that are going to be working for them just don't believe in that in the first place? You know what I mean? Am I making a... a, a oh, oh, I know what you mean. Um, I don't, you know, Greg, I don't know. You know, the whole basis of this is what I just said. It's like, I, if somebody's telling me something, or actually not me, but the greater portion of the population, something that they want to believe and already believe and, and think that they're moving towards, to me, that means that is either not the whole story or pretty far off the story. And so when I hear that, uh, when I hear something like what happened in the New York, what was announced in the New York Times, I'm thinking these are people that have been involved with secrets for the entire time. They, they've been in, in their careers and they are trying to get an advantage on um, other companies, other countries, governments, etc. maybe more in the private sector, but that they're saying this to steer the conversation towards what they want people to be talking about and not what's actually being done. Do you think that's what's happening? Greg, I don't know. I have to say hmm. it could be happening. Okay. Well, I, this is just an idea. It's not, I don't think, I don't know if that what's going on, but because of my background and the people I talk to and what I've written about and all that, I'm always suspicious. I don't, you know, I'm not, I don't reject, but I'm always suspicious about what motivations are. I think suspicion is a good uh, way to approach anything that has to do with this topic. Yeah. There's and a skepticism. Yeah. Healthy skepticism. Yeah. yeah. There's, a, there's a weird line you have to walk where you, and we, you know, it's almost the academic end talking to people who believe in this and live in this thing, is this line you have to walk where you listen and believe people as they s say things to you, but you do not buy into and the attraction and the, what's the word, the, the aura surrounding what the UFO thing is, pulls people in, pulls them towards something, and then takes over their belief system. And it's really hard to stay off of that. And, you can, and Jeff Ritzman said this uh, on one of my shows. You see the people with the, the highest credentials and the most, you know, uh, and, and the most intelligent people suddenly become a believer in something and they kind of go down, they go down this road and you don't hear them ever again, or they, you know, they become like an evangelist for some certain point of view. And that there's this weird attraction in, in the UFO field and you have to step away from it every once in a while, or it takes over your thought process. And so it's this weird thing for me where I am really interested, but I don't want to get pulled into some thought process or some belief system or something like that. And it's hard to it's hard to maintain that. And the only way to do it, I guess, is to step away from it every once in a while and have other interests, I suppose. Oh, I think so. And I think that's what, um, you know, when a religion, when a person converts to a religion, that's why, you know, the, the UFO 
you know, the UFO field really parallels, you know, the study of religion. Um, people, you know, the religion really becomes uh, the criteria by which people live their lives, right? It becomes their ultimate truth. Right. So in a sense, people who get caught up into ufology or, you know, the phenomena, you know, it, it does do that to them. And, and I, that was one of the first things I noticed as a person trained in religious studies. I noticed that right away. And I said, you know, <laughs> here we have, uh, you know, Carl Jung said it, you know, here, here we have the, the formation of a new mythology, and we get to see it form right before our eyes. And he said that in the 1940s. Oh, and the other part of uh, what we've been talking about, and we just talked about right before the show, was we both, for some strange reason, went and saw the new Star Wars movie yesterday. It was wonderful. I loved it. Yeah, why? <laughs> well, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it ha- it correlated a lot to- with my book. I mean, I have to say that. Maybe it's because I'm so into writing my book and just finished with it that, you know, if I see something that I think is just amazing, I say, oh, that's my book. But I also love this video by the few fighters um, called uh, The Sky is Neighborhood, mm-hmm. which I've been basically listening to without even knowing what the heck it was about. And then one of my kids said to me, um, Mama, what kind of title is that for a song? And I thought, oh, it's got to be about the phenomena. It just has to be. So I went home, I watched the video, and it was just beautiful. I love it. So um I actually quote it in my book. And so there's a lot of pop culture right now that, to me, has all of the elements. You know, they've got the manuscripts, the ancient manuscripts. Um, it's no spoiler to remind people that the, you know, uh, Rogue One, uh, it was Rogue One that left off with uh, the Skellig Michael shot, right, with Mark Hamill up with Luke Skywalker up on the the monks. Uh, yes. Skellig, you know, Okay, so Skellig Michael, do you know what that is? No. Oh, oh, this is great. Okay, so Skellig Michael is actually home of Irish monks of, the, I believe, the 7th century, and they were cloistered monks who lived on this very real island, which, by the way, I've been to, mm-hmm. um, off of the west coast of Ireland, and you have to take a, a boat, and it's about a mile and a half out, and you, you traverse these steps that go about 800 feet up this rock. And this is where these monks lived. And they, they lived in these little beehive um, monasteries. And they lived there. And they, their whole job, they took cattle up there or, you know, livestock. And they had gardens up there. And they basically prayed. And they, they wrote manuscripts and stuff. And so mm-hmm. this is a real place. And I was there probably about 15, maybe 20 years ago. I can't remember, but I definitely remember it was a terrifying venture up those steps. <laughs> so, um, so I caught, I said so the, the last scene of that movie is Ray. Well, maybe it's not rogue one because that's a different one, but Ray, um, gives, you know, the lightsaber to Mark Hamill and he, um, he takes it. Mm-hmm. And then it opens with this. And so a lot of the, and this is not a spoiler, but a lot of the scenes from The Last Jedi occur on this island out in the middle, you know, out in the middle of the Irish Sea out there. And it's incredible because of the recognition that the Jedi religion, you know, it's so close to the Christian religion. This is the hub of Irish Christianity or Western Christianity. This is it. This is where it begins. And so to me, it was just 
really awesome to see him out there. And so, um, and, and a lot of the scenes from the movie are on Skellig Michael. And you should Google Skellig Michael because you'll learn a lot about it. And if you ever go to Ireland, absolutely make the trek up there. So it's, it's kind of dangerous going up the, the rocks, though. So, but, some, but people do do it. Um, so, so I love that movie. So there were so many different elements of the movie that reminded me of the phenomena. Um, and you'll, you, and if you see the movie, you'll no, notice why you obviously know why, why, because you read some of the book that I've written and also, um, you mm-hmm. know what I'm writing in the last part of my book. So yeah, yeah so the, the movie, I, I cannot give it, I, I, my um, daughter said that it got some bad reviews, but I don't know why it's awesome. I haven't it's seen any bad reviews for it. Everybody I've talked to and seen it, you know, there's only been a couple of grumblings, but most people love it. And I know why. One, because, you know, it's fun entertainment and all that and answers a lot of questions and flatters your, if you've been, a, you know, with the franchise for a long time, it flatters all your, ticks all the boxes. But, sure. Yeah. Sure. But, on a, but on a deeper level, it's doing that same thing we talked about earlier in the show where it is influencing and speaking to a lot of people on a very basic level at a, at a um, subconscious level, at a collective unconscious level about things that should be important to them i after i finished watching the movie i made a couple of decisions about stuff that i, w- I wanted to do i, I hate wow, to ad- really yeah i hate to admit it but it kind of you know they every time um uh uh, uh what's the female jedi's character ray uh, ray yeah every time ray is presented with something that will pull her off her path she resists it I mean, to the point of, you know, nobody else in their, ever in their right mind could resist a lot of these, these temptations or whatever you want to call them. Sure. But the, the strength of her whatever, the, the strength of her character or her, uh, her conviction is, is superhuman uh, to a point where it's, it is a, um, it's an archetype. I mean, the, 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 the archetype of something that something or somebody that is so dedicated to whatever they need to do um that is a piece of strength that people need to hook on it's an anchor for a lot of people and it acted that way for me when i saw her how she reacted to all these temptations and and distractions and all that and said no you know that what i need to do is what i need to do and and it's on a level where i don't almost don't have a choice about it um yes i totally agree yeah. yeah And whether people agree with that or not, I mean, or if it's a, it could be applied in the real world, I think it can as a guide. It made me make some hard decisions about some things, and I'm going to have to follow through on them. <laughs> a dumb movie, which is, you know, I think that's great. <laughs> I know. They're not dumb movies, though. Yeah. No, no, they're not. They're not at all. I mean, the best movies are, are, are and, yeah. and any works of art um, speak to something that is... Um, below the level of consciousness and uh, applies to us all and helps us, you know, make, make decisions in our lives, hopefully for the better, because you see, you, you get confused and then suddenly there's a little light that pulls you in that direction. And, um, I almost hate to admit it, but, uh, Star Wars did that. And it did it to me when the first movie came out when I was a little kid. Me too. So you and I are probably like the generation that adopted this mythology of Star Wars, and it was so incredibly, I mean, uh, a good portion of my book, one chapter especially, is um, entitled, If Star Wars Was Real, It Would Look Like This, Mm -hmm. and basically how Star Wars 
has um, basically, you, you, it doesn't even matter if you've never even seen the movie. You know what the whole movie is about. You know the characters. I mean, this is this is an ethos, and yeah. this has completely permeated our culture. And you know, we live by Star Wars now. You know, my kids yeah. know it better than me. Yeah, and it, um, yeah, it comes from Hero know, with a Thousand Faces is a very you know uh, uh, a foundation um, myth for for Star Wars. Exactly. Yes. So, and now it's, it's the myth of our time. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so on every level, uh, it's super important. And um, it's not, you know, a lot of my colleagues, when I first started studying pop culture, which was a long time ago, they were like, why are you studying this? And I said, this is more important than you think. <laughs> you know, people actually live their lives by the things they learn about in movies and they're impacted. They make decisions based on movies, what they see in movies. And so um, now it's a legitimate, you know, if you don't study it, I think that you're losing a lot in your analysis of things. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you can be pulled in a million different uh, directions on the Internet, but a TV uh, show or especially a film or a book to some extent, people don't really read books anymore. But these things can permeate your your uh, subconscious in a way that just reading a newspaper or or you know arguing with people online or having seeing something on Facebook cannot do, and that's it. I think what these things do is provide context in a way that um, uh, in, in a way that can't be done any other in, in, in any other method to present something to people that is that can help them. I mean, it's entertainment, but. Behind all this is a message that, well, yeah, stick to your stick to your guns. You know, it, it, first find mm-hmm. some guns, but then stick to them. You know, um, right? You know, right. And, and maybe help. Maybe some of these movies and TV shows and and what we're talking about here helps people find some guns. It, it certainly helped me. Uh, oh, absolutely. Even if your instrument is the UFO thing, if it can help you. It's not an end in itself, and I think some a lot of the people you talk to, uh, people in your book, people you've met, people you've hung out with, people at these conferences, realize that it's the UFO thing is not a, is not an end in itself, but uh, it's a tool to make discoveries about yourself, about how people interact with each other, about where our society is going, and all that. Oh, absolutely, um, definitely. So, in the very last chapter of my book, I I note that. The, um, the voyages of, of Sister Maria, where she bilocates to the Southwest and, uh, you know, brings the Catholic faith to these Indians that are there, these Native Americans, indigenous people of the Southwest, um, whether or not they're real, I set aside, but I say that this imaginary voyage actually got funding from the print, the um, king of Spain in order to create the real missionary colonization. So now my point is that mm. this is very, very similar to what's get happening right now with, um, with the, you know, we have the bite of realism of, say, the New York Times article that just came out, such that, you know, our visions of colonizing space have been fed to us since we were a kid. You know, you and I, at least, we were kids. Yeah. Well, no, everybody, because, you know, before yeah. us, it was Star Trek and all that kind of stuff. Right. So, basically, um, we already have in our vision and our imagination, we've already traveled there, so now what's happening is, is it's going to happen. The real thing is going to happen. People like, you know, Elon, 
Musk, you know, will find some way to do it, you know. And so um, I'm using Tyler as kind of the new uh, Maria of Agrida. You know, he's the new, he's got the vision, you know, and he's, yeah. he's, he's saying this is going to happen. He's kind of like, you know, and in Maria's day, a lot of people didn't believe her. They were like, no, that didn't happen or it can't happen. It can't possibly happen. But it didn't matter whether it did or it didn't. It's the imagination is what made it eventually happen. It's what caused the king of Spain to fund the actual missionaries there. And so, you know, that's what's going on right now. So if we have in our imagination that this is a possibility, the funding comes. Mm-hmm. I, people sometimes ask, you know, how, how do you get things done that you want to get done? And, my, and I, I think I, I don't know where I got this. I probably got it from Western occultism. But the idea that you've just elucidated is the same thing. I imagine that something is already done in the future, and I just have to get myself to it. And I yes. think, yeah, and on, yes. a, on a basic level, that's that's how that you've just described. Um, people don't just blunder forward or make an accidental discovery or whatever. They've already imagined it in the future, and uh, even on a subconscious level. And the the task is to get yourself to that future in the most you know efficient and and maybe if you're lucky fun way possible. And it's not it's not always yeah. going to be it's not always going to be fun. There's going to be struggles, but it's. You have to close. You're continually closing a loop of what you're imagining in the future. I think that that's uh, that that that's the model I use, and it sounds like that's the model these these uh, people you talk to are using, and that that's another reason why I wanted to have you on the show. Yeah, their model is also um, what part of the point of my book too is to say that what's different about this new what I call religiosity of the UFO is that there's a potential realism of it. So, you know, you have the chief scientist of NASA going on periodically coming on the news and basically saying, you know, we're 10 years from discovering life. You know, it's probably microbes, but, you know, people don't interpret it that way. They say, oh, we're going to discover life. And NASA said so. And so there's this realism that other religions have not had the benefit of experiencing, right? So like Christianity, you know, you know, you know we're, we're like, we're always trying to find the real you know, place where Jesus was born or something like that, you know, that's, we're not going to find it. And yeah. so, so there's science kind of behind this other UFO thing. So that's, uh, that's what's happening here is that, you know, there's kind of a realism and that's what makes this new form of religiosity powerful and also, you know, fuels the funding, fuels the, um, the people who want to, you know, the billionaires who want to put money into it and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about these people you talk to, the billionaires and all that, that allow them to uh, imagine things that seem heretical to most of us? And can you give us examples of something that they that everybody thought was heretical, impossible, or whatever, and they just said, well, we're just going to go ahead and throw money at it, and um, they, they came into being? I think that from my own experience... Um I believe that they've surrounded themselves with people who have, have, who do basically extraordinary research and come upon things that are quite anomalous and extraordinary, and that this convinces the people who do have the money, and then the people with the money say, let's put some money, more money into this and find out some more information, and it's kind of circular in that way, and it keeps going. And so, um, you know, because there's a lot of private funding of scholars to do this kind of work 
And uh, the scholars won't say it, you know, that will, you know, their reputation as scholars could come, you know, could come under fire. So they're not going to tell anybody, but um, that's what they're doing. And it's private funding. And I think that a lot of the people who become billionaires on their own because of their own ingenuity, they, you know, um, the person who I talk about in the second chapter of my book, James is uh, his, his name, but that's not his real name. Um, he's an academic and he basically says that it's, I, this is an IQ, you know, this is basically an IQ test. If people don't pass the IQ test of, of even imagining that this could be a possibility that there could be non-human intelligent life, I really don't want to talk to them, (laughs) you know, to him, to him, it's a gauge of like how intelligent somebody is. That's funny because in the way that most people think of it, that would be, you know, at least what we're told to think is that if you believe in extraterrestrial intelligence, there's, you know, you're already off the table. You're, you're, you, you've gone off the, you've gone around the bend. You don't really have any, um, there's nothing to talk about anymore because you're obviously nuts. But from these, to, to this guy's mind, if you can't even accept that the, the possibility of it, much less believe in some reality of it, then there's, there's no reason to go any further. It's absolutely true, and that's the, my first chapter kind of um, explains this in the first paragraph where I talk about when Robert Bigelow went on 60 Minutes, and he basically said, yeah, yeah, it, it exists. And his interviewer said, well, aren't you afraid people are going to think that you're crazy? And he said, I don't give a crap. Yeah. And I thought that I loved it, and I used that in the first paragraph of my um, book because the people – this is my first – a moment where, you know, I was, I was doing this research and I realized I was, you know, I was around a lot of people who were experiencers, kind of normal people who had these experiences. But then I noticed that there was a whole nother group of people and I call them the meta experiences. And these were the scientists who actually were funded by private people uh, in order to get data and information from the experiencers. And I thought, whoa, this is a, this is a really weird group of people and I'm going to start studying them. So I started to study them. And the more I studied them, the more I started to meet people, and the more I realized that incredibly intelligent people are the ones who believe. And so it's just the opposite of what the normal thought is. You know, the the normative thought that we're kooks if we believe in it is actually the opposite. The people who actually believe in it are the are the people who I encountered who were the smartest people in the room mm-hmm. by far, by far. Yeah, but they don't. I I would ha- I would um, add. If I'm, uh, you tell me if I'm wrong, that they don't believe in the popular conception of you know alien greys coming here to abduct people or whatever. That that is not what their no, idea no. is. Yeah, yeah. They have very sophisticated understandings of what is going on, mm-hmm. and they are actively trying to find out. So yeah. Yeah, that and it, it does not conform to that model because they because if it did conform to that model, then it's it just wouldn't. On my gut level, it should not conform to that model because that is what most people believe. That is what's pushed, and that's what in, what's in all the movies, TV shows, and books. The fact yeah, yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't conform to that model. In fact, um, again, I refer to pop culture because there's in some movies get it right. You know, like Arrival, even though the representation mm-hmm. of the aliens was really weird as far as I was concerned. Yeah. There were there were elements there that confirmed a lot of what the people who I study believed. Uh, like the notion of time and the mm-hmm. notion of telepathy, 
yep. which, by the way, is also is also occurs in the Last Jedi. Right. So you know, I mean, both of those elements are are key elements to the phenomena. Like we have to revive if we're going to think about the phenomena and explain it, we have to go more with understanding time in a more kind of Einsteinian or quantum way than the ways in which we, you know, most people just think of time as a linear arrow. Yeah. But, you know, and if if time is a linear arrow, arrow, things look weird when they happen. But if you think that somehow you can know the future in some strange way, and I'm not talking about like, you know, that you know it. um, Right. Then it makes, then certain things make sense. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so Arrival was a, was a great movie for that, um, you know. And also, The Last Jedi had a lot of elements that I thought kind of corresponded to the phenomena as I know know it pre- presented by the people that I've been in contact with. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there might be reasons that those that stuff was uh, was presented in The Last Jedi because it's uh, not, maybe not even to teach people, just say, look. This is where things are going. We understand it in this way. And people that it's a beacon for people that are sort of on the fence or don't really know about it to move in this direction and change things. This is my idea about the UFO thing is that it, the, uh, we will discover what it is, um, which I don't think is a really good way to think about it, but have a better understanding about it when people's ways of thinking about reality and time and you know how things happen and what science is about change. That will change the idea of the UFO subject. So it goes kind of hand in hand. Uh, does that make sense to you? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And in fact, um, I just revisited, you know, the Carl Raschke article about how the specter of the UFO kind of challenges our scientific materialisms and things like that. And what I wanted to add to his article, which I think is awesome, yeah. um, is this, is that, you know, he talked about it in a purely kind of, in a way in which it was, you know, this concept, a conceptual way that it changes how we think about things. But when you actually have an anomalous artifact, that changes things in in such a real way that there is no, like, that's the change. The change doesn't have to challenge us. We, the change happens and we go along with it. So what I write about it is I basically say that the P, and here again is where I think Martin Heidegger gets it right, you know, where he says that there are some things that uh, present themselves to us that can't actually be spoken of with the language that we have. Mm-hmm. And when it happens, our language must change. And so that's what, you know, Thomas Kuhn says in the, you know, the scientific, his book on scientific revolution. Yeah, structure of scientific inex- revolution. Yeah. Yeah. It's the inexplicable that actually causes us to, to move forward. And so the people who I study are kind of like the living instantiations of what Heidegger poses, and they extend Rashke's idea in a very material way. And I think that's what my book ultimately is about, is about the, it's already happening, and we're behind. You know, our, our systems of interpretation are behind, but the material reality of these technologies is here. The, the anomalous artifacts are here, you know, and it's that we need to catch up with them. And the people who are catching up with them are these are like some of the people who I interview in my book and who, you know, the first and second chapter especially that talk about that. This extends his his cool analysis, which he wrote he wrote it a long time ago, but I kind of revisited it. The artifacts that these people found, I don't know if I can think about them myself as literal pieces of alien spacecraft that come from somewhere. 
I don't know if it's, it's profitable to think about it in that way. It is profitable to think about it in a way that it is, they are not human sourced or human made, but to say that these came from space, from another planet, from aliens that crashed here, I don't think that's a hundred percent true either. Does that, is, is there some legitimacy, legitimacy to thinking about it that way? All I can say is what, first of all, I'm a non-scientist, and I'm not discounting what I know or anything, because I think I have a, a, a pretty decent framework for understanding it. But what, I'm, what I have learned from them is that um, I don't think we can know anything about it at this point. I don't think we can say the origin of it, or it's, it's absolutely inexplicable. And, um, you know, to think about it in the literalist way of, you know, this has to be kind of this, you know, it is an artifact. Right, <laughs> it is right. not, you know, it's not a concept or it's not. No, no, you can hold it in your hand. Yeah, it's not a psychic, like, impression that somebody has, you know. It's an actual physical artifact that can be studied with, you know, the best microscopes and things we have. Mm-hmm. And so um, that is kind of mind-blowing to me. And I think that that moves us in a direction that leaves nothing off the table is what I would, what right. I would say. <laughs> and I think that's what they want. Because if you look at these things with a, uh, with a mindset of either one, they can't be, or two, this is, you know, this is a gift from, from wherever, from uh, uh, an accidental gift from, from aliens, the, those two, that, that dichotomy, I think, does any interpretation of it a disservice, either on one side or other of that dichotomy. And again, this reminds me of religion, because, you know, you have all kinds of interpretations of religion, especially, you know, what I know best is the Christian religion. In the first few hundred years after Jesus is killed by the Romans, you know, you have maybe a hundred different interpretations of Jesus and and his message. Um, You know, some are really esoteric. Some are really literal, mm-hmm. and some are between those two. And then at some point, you have the Roman government stepping in, you know, in 325 to about 345, and basically making Christianity a state religion and stamping out all the other interpretations. And I think this is a lesson we need to learn with respect to ufology. That's what I think. I think that, you know, if you're looking at how religions begin and how they, you know, kind of go along, I think that, you know, it. I think that we can't uh, vilify interpretations. I, mm. You know, it's already done. In, you know, there's already the, di- the dichotomy that we talked about in the beginning of this interview within ufology, you know, the kind of woo-hoo and then yeah. the more scientifically oriented. Well, there's no black and white there. They kind of bleed into one another. And I think that um, care, being very careful and being as, you know, having, as, you know, having different people at, at the table to talk about it from different disciplines is really helpful. And right. um, not, you know, not demonizing one interpretation over another is probably best. I mean, if we're going to learn from history, I think that's what we should learn. Right. Okay. Uh, you wanted to end it. I pulled you one more. <laughs> I pulled you for like two minutes more. <laughs> the guests always picks the end song. Should it be the, uh, the Foo Fighters song you were talking about? That would be awesome. I love that song. What's the name of the song? The Sky is a Neighborhood. Okay. Thanks so much, Diana, for, for talking to me for this, uh, for this uh, short amount of time. And I think we should continue maybe when the book comes out and we get more perspective on what's going on with uh, this thing in the New York Times and 
how the next time we talk, I think UFO study will have changed a bit. I think so, too. And I, would, I always love to talk with you, Greg. All right. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, okay. Greg. Talk, talk soon. All right. Bye. Bye. Stop and down Someone coming up 